Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Shop. On this Inside Intercom mini-series, we're exploring the world of retail and e-commerce, the past, the present and the future. Over four episodes, we're delving into the physical history of the store, how our habits have changed, what's fueling the shift online and how the events of 2020 may inform how we shop, plan and build in the future. Today's episode is part two in the series, Habits, and we're taking a look at the sociological changes that we've seen, which are fundamentally changing how we trade, browse and shop. In the 1960 film adaptation of H.G. Wells' novella The Time Machine, the filmmakers use a simple and effective device to show the hero's journey through time itself. A shop window facing him races through decades and world events, while the clothing on a stationary mannequin changes to display new fashions and trends. In this retail display, our own world is reflected back at us. Because how we shop and trade says a lot about where and who we are as a society, all the more so in times of change. So, these current times feel like an important moment, not just for retail, but in a wider context too. So how did window shopping become couch scrolling? And at what point did social media start to influence our tastes? And when did a shampoo subscription start to feel like it made more sense than just a trip to the drugstore? But as you'll hear in this episode, a lot of what we're seeing today has been evolving for a long time. And in some cases, hasn't changed that much at all. One person with a bird's eye view of this evolution is Lauren Paddleford. We've spoken with Lauren a few times already on the podcast this year, and his insights on retail, e-commerce and consumers are always compelling. He seemed like a good person to start with in trying to define and understand these trends. I am a general manager here at Shopify, and uh, for the past six years, I've been working on Shopify Plus, which is the platform and the products and features that the largest customers in our ecosystem use. So what what most people don't realize about Shopify is that um, not only do we have a huge community of entrepreneurs and startups who are building their businesses from the ground up on Shopify, but that a lot of those entrepreneurs become very, very successful and turn into very large world scale type companies. And those companies uh, tend to transition into Shopify Plus so that they get access to more advanced features and more uh, complex features so that they can continue to scale. And so you look at this and it's customers like uh, Gymshark or Allbirds or uh, Steve Madden. Um, if you're in Australia, JB Hi-Fi. So lots of very large, um, very mature businesses that continue to rely on Shopify's ecosystem and platform for their own growth. So I've been, I've been working on that uh, for the last six years, building that team out, building that product out. And uh, more recently, with the inclusion of uh, you know John Wexler into our, our organization, really starting to focus on some work around creators and influencers and the impact they're having on uh, both community building, social media, and commerce on a worldwide basis. Super. So it, it seems like at the moment, or this year anyway, we've really reached an exciting point in the retail landscape where we're kind of at this intersection between traditional retail, the subscription economy, e-commerce and social commerce. You know, looking back a bit to how we might have gotten to this point, Lauren, because you've such a great top level view of the industry of a whole. When did you start to see these changes coming around the corner and, and what do you think's influenced them? That's a good question. Um, 
I mean, I think we've seen pieces of these changes coming for about a decade. You know, the introduction of the smartphone was kind of the first leg to drop, where suddenly consumers had a very powerful computer with them at all times, and it gave them instant access to the world, which dramatically changed the interaction style of consumers. It no longer was retailers in charge of how a consumer behaved. A consumer could now behave in any way that it wanted. It could find products without leaving their houses. It could um, go online, in-store, whatever it happened to be. So that was the first. The second was social media, you know, popped up a couple years after that. And how we started to interact as humans became very focused on our, our communities and the groups that we fell in love with and these social media platforms. And then COVID showed up. You know, necessity is the mother of all invention and COVID has become retail's like greatest in innovator. It has forced brands of all sizes and all shapes and, and structures to reinvent how they interact with their consumers because their consumers were also forced to reinvent how they shopped. And I think this is what we see now is there's just, there's no single shopping channel left in the world. There's no one way to do it. The best brands, the, the most innovative brands, the most innovative influencers and creators um, are very, very nimble. And they adapt very quickly to the trends that resonate with their consumers. And because consumer trends are changing rapidly and COVID's driving some of it, social media's driving some of it, you can't just rely on one channel anymore. So now those best brands are physical and digital and using subscriptions and using social media and using mobile. And, like, and they're just kind of everywhere their consumers are. And that defines the brands of the future. The, those brands who are highly nimble and highly creative and exist where their, where their customers want them to exist. One of the really interesting things about creators and influencers is for a large part, they own the communities. And so brands are, are having to come through them to get access to these very strong, very powerful communities of people. We love our heroes. So we follow our heroes around, whether that's sporting heroes, musicians, fashion designers, whatever it happens to be. Um, we as consumers tend to follow the trends they create and want to be involved in those, uh, those communities. And so you see influencer marketing has been a thing for a long time. If you go back decades, you see celebrities endorsing brands. But significantly what's changed you know, since the introduction of social media platforms is you always traditionally had this middleman between the influencer and their communities. So it was an influencer, it was a creator who was supporting somebody else's brand. So they were supporting you know, whatever, whatever athletic wear or whatever um, perfume brand or whatever it happened to be. Now with social media, creators can have a direct relationship with their communities that love them. And they now don't need these middles to create brands of their own and legacies of their own and to interact with those communities that love them so much. I think that's the big shift that we're seeing in influencer marketing is away from the promotion of other people's things and really watching these creators create their own things, um, create their own brands, create their own legacies and give those to their communities 
And so you, you, you still see the traditional creator, influencer slash brand work. And a, a great example is Gymshark. Gymshark um, is a athletic apparel brand out of the UK. They're one of the fastest growing companies in the world. They've done a great job leveraging athletes and specifically uh, fitness competitors and bodybuilders to promote their brand to their communities. And as a result, they have this huge following of rabid fans who just love everything they do. And then you see actual pure creators like Jeffree Star and what, what he has continued to do with um, his own makeup brand and collaborating with other influencers and creators to create these massive moments on the internet, these huge flash sales. And so I think you're starting to see this blending of um, what is a brand and what is an influencer because they are becoming the same thing. Uh, and creators increasingly have more and more control over the end communities everybody wants to have access to. And they're realizing they can just create their own brands and talk directly to those those fans that they're um, so passionate about. And that's a really interesting trend that I think will accelerate and continue over the next number of years. You're right. It is really interesting because I think there's a tendency when we talk about e-commerce to not necessarily include social commerce in that conversation. But as far as what I can take from what you're saying, it does have a huge impact on how consumers are shopping and how their shopping habits are going to look in the future. Yeah. Interestingly, shopping has always been about what your friends and family and coworkers bought. You know, word of mouth has always been the strongest influencer over future future purchase behavior of consumers. Um, it, we just never had a way that was digital that we could kind of do that. And so now you're online and you're in Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it happens to be, and you're watching your friends or these heroes of yours, these, these celebrities and influencers, um, talk about their own experiences and what they've bought and what they purchased and what they like. And... It used to be that there was no connection. It was like, oh, I saw that, but I couldn't do anything about it because the shopping experience and the social experience was separated by a number of both physical and digital steps. Well, now the separation is zero. And so you, you can see the desire for these social platforms to also become commerce platforms so that, you know, you can intentionally move from I saw this on this social platform to I acquired this in, on the social platform. And that's again, brands being nimble and recognizing, hey, you know, my consumer wants to be on this platform. And so I have to give them the ability to shop and experience and acquire things and engage with, with my brand and these influencers directly on those platforms. And so, uh, you know, we see that now in our work with the social media platforms is that, is to enable this ability to transact within the experience so that you don't have to have this disjointed, oh, I saw it in one place, but now I have to go do it in somewhere else. Consumers don't want that. Consumers want to be able to transact right in the moment. And so as we enable this and as more of these platforms get comfortable here and as more people get comfortable with that shopping behavior, uh, I think you'll see that expand tremendously just because it's so natural for us to share things and be like, oh yeah, I want one of those too and be able to do that. Yeah, you're right. It sounds like a very instinctive way of shopping. Yeah. You, I, I know Shopify recently announced a partnership with TikTok. So do you think those sort of brand partnerships are going to really fully flesh out the e-commerce ecosystem in the future? Yes. So to, it, just a, a bit of background. So mm. in 2019, um, Shopify consumers 
68% of all orders were done on a mobile device. And 80% of all traffic came from mobile devices. Increasingly, consumers are shopping from their apps and from phones, right? and less sitting at a computer. So these social media apps is where all of us live all day long. We spend so much time in them. And shopping behavior is happening more and more in apps. So the colliding of these two things just made like obvious, obvious sense. So, you know, working with and being able to build these partnerships with these social platforms like TikTok allows us, TikTok, right, and the brands to satisfy the consumer in the way that it wants. So that that brand can launch in a unique way, say on TikTok for TikTok for Business, and engage their customers in that channel, in that place that they already are. And so everyone gets what they want. The consumer gets to interact with brands and um, engage and transact in the native platform. The native platform gets more value they can provide to their customers and the brands themselves get access to yet another channel where their consumers already are. And, you know, when you build these kinds of ecosystem type relationships, everybody benefits. It makes sense that social media and social commerce represent the most obvious habitual changes to our shopping habits. But not everyone lives in a world where they know who to follow or how to buy an app or would necessarily want to. Lauren makes the point that for many, this influencer-led marketing is just an extension of the way that we used to be influenced by friends, by family and people we had an in-person relationship with. This type of personalization is central to a certain type of shopper and a certain professional salesperson. We chatted with Michelle Curtin, the head of personal shopping at Brown Thomas, Ireland's largest high-end fashion retailer. Find out a little bit more about this type of relationship. I always kind of thought I would possibly end up working at a fashion magazine and tried tried that out actually while I was in college, did a lot of internships in Paris and London and really, I suppose, kind of realised a lot about the fashion magazine industry and kind of was drawn a little bit more toward retail where it was, I suppose, financially a lot more stable, where I kind of discovered my love of selling and the immediacy of styling that you can do within a sort of a retail framework. So so I suppose that kind of sums up sort of where I came from. Um, I was always super interested in fashion. I was always determined to work in that sphere. And I suppose where I am today, I, I still find very exciting. And I suppose personal shopping as a career is a funny one. A lot of people, I suppose in this moment in time would tend to kind of move from organization to organization. But within kind of the personal shopping sphere, it's about loyalty. It's about um, building a book of clients and, and you tend to kind of stick with the company and you stick with those clients and, and build and build on it. It's part of the Selfridges group. So we're owned by Galen Weston. And I suppose you've got Haute Renfro in Canada. You've got Divine Core in Amsterdam. You have Selfridges, obviously the best store in the world in London. So I suppose Brown Thomas is part of that stable of luxury retail stores and it would be the premier retail store in Ireland. So let's chat a a little bit about what your day-to-day work life looks like pre-2020 because obviously there's been a lot of changes since. Do you think it's fair to say that 
for your clientele, Michelle, shopping, it's, it's more than just a transaction. It's, it's a really personal experience. It's, it, and it is an experience. I would absolutely agree. It's 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 so much more than that, more than a transaction, I suppose. I mean, shopping for a lot of people is is a little bit part of their identity. I mean, people love it. I mean, I suppose shopping generates endorphins. It it, it makes you feel powerful, makes you feel excited. You know, you have that experience of coming into a store, in my traditional sense, meeting with experts, really enjoying that element of it. So, so absolutely, it's more than just picking something off a rail and going up to a tail point and paying. It's, you know, the anticipation. It's the coming into to town. We're based in the city centre in, in Dublin, or at least I am. In, in Brain Thomas. So it's about that journey into town. It's about the anticipation of what they might see. It's about the, the lovely experience of, of seeing it in a beautiful environment. We we kind of work out of personal shopping rooms, which are kind of very luxurious and big. And, you know, I suppose they add to that whole experience of, of purchasing something or, or, or many things, really. So I would totally agree that it's more than a simple transaction for so many people. And for others, it, it is kind of a very functional, I need a coat, there's a coat, I like it. And, you know, but I suppose for the most part, that's not who I deal with. No, and that's not the service that you offer. And like what you offer is a service beyond just the shopping transaction. It's it's that personal one-to-one experience. It's it's someone who knows you, who's gonna who's gonna be able to anticipate what you might like or what might suit you. And there's a level of trust there, mm-hmm. I would imagine, have with your clients. Mm-hmm. With that though, Michelle, does that mean that you know, there's traditionally been a kind of a reticence for people in your line of work or or your customers to embrace sort of remote or online versions of what you offer. Well, I suppose, Dee, it's the physical interaction, the seeing the item in reality, that kind of physical experience personal shopper client that is very hard to beat. I mean, absolutely, we'd have, we would have used photographs and, and, you know, to a small degree, virtual appointments to showcase to clients in the past. But I mean, it definitely, from my point of view, feels second best to that one-on-one and in-person experience. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And like, you're saying you did use some. So what sort of technology would you have been using? Like obviously social media, but like with some personalized mailers, do you like do you cloud-based inventory management? So I would say D, it's it's just extremely personal. So it's it's WhatsApp for a huge part, it's text message, uh, largely phone call. I mean, I would say a personalized mailer, no, that feels not personal enough. I suppose the intimacy of somebody's telephone number feels more than than an email. I would say you know, it, it really is kind of basic is the wrong word, but it is really those kind of more very personal, specific tools or, or methods that we use. I mean, obviously, you, you know, I'm talking about the clients that I see extremely regularly. I mean, I suppose our Instagram is is a huge driver of business to us. You know, it's a, it's a great showcase for brand. Um, we would often promote personal shopping through our Instagram platform. But me personally, it would be very much phone call first, WhatsApp message or phone message second. And that really would be the, the tool I would use the most. 
other personal shoppers would very much use Instagram as a platform. A lot of, um, I suppose, personal shoppers that are younger than me would use Instagram largely as a driver to, of their of their business. For me, I suppose my business is is still very personal, uh, and and I have a lot of clients. I suppose where their privacy is is hugely key. So in terms of you using maybe Instagram to a degree, you know, maybe showcasing a room of product, for me, in some instances, that wouldn't be appropriate because it could be traced back to, to the client. So really that kind of very personal, intimate way of contacting somebody either through their their through phone call or WhatsApp or message kind of really works for me. Now, that's not to say that Instagram doesn't work for, for another personal shopper. It absolutely does. Um, but but I just find that that's the nature of the clients that I, that I deal with largely. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about mm. 2020 then, because like, obviously it's been a really challenging year across all sectors, but I think retail in particular, has taken a hit. When when a shopping habit, as you've described, is so tied to the experience and that one-to-one relationship, as you've described as well, how have you and your clients managed to adapt over the last nine months or so? Okay, well, I suppose what's really interesting, Dee, is that from a, a retail point of view, we actually never stopped working. So I know in many retail instances, the doors were closed and the communication with your kind of client base stopped or or it just shifted online and, and really the the retail staff were, were not kind of part of that. For us, we were very much in-store communicating with all those clients. So what I would say, Dee, really is that there hasn't been so much of a break in communication. You know, I suppose, yes, the doors have been closed earlier in the year and again at the moment. But if anything, that just means you're picking up the phone, kind of checking in on people, finding out how they are, how they're coping with the pandemic because I mean to be honest personal shopping is very intimate I mean I know some of my clients 15 years at this stage you know so you really do care about them and I think you, you need to know that somebody is in a, in a good frame of mind if if they want to shop you know what I mean it's a, I mean really first things first how how is everybody you know it's it's a really tough time and I mean I suppose a phone call is is a great way to establish how people are and I think people really appreciate that when it comes from a sincere point of view in terms of how you're you're you know I think that you've never stopped working so like, are you doing zooms are you doing video calls how, like how are you doing the day-to-day kind of consultation yeah, so you can book a virtual appointment on our website. So that's one method that we've been using. But um, an awful lot of FaceTime D is is really how I have kind of conducted my virtual appointments. So so essentially, I would prep a room in the same way that I would if you were physically walking into that room and, and use a tripod. And it, it's almost like presenting a program in many ways and talk the client through the product. Now, I mean, obviously, you don't have the advantage of the client client being in the room able to try on but I mean it has worked very well for us I mean it it has surprised me in many ways how well it has worked and and then what we would do is send the product out to the client and by and large we've had great success with with that 
do you know, Dee, I absolutely see the benefit of, let's say if I had a product or an item, for instance, and, you know, at the very top end, at the luxury end, there is often one or two of an item. So there's huge demand for it. And, you know, you're just trying to gauge, is that right for for one person or another? And, you know, in, in many instances, somebody can't get in immediately. They, they may not be able to get in until after the weekend. But, you know, in, in that instance, you're calling somebody to tell them about an item. I think what we've realized now is, you know, you can do a virtual with somebody. They can have a really good sense that they're interested in an item. So if you are holding it for somebody, there's a much greater chance that it's going to be the right fit. So so that I really see the benefit of. I do, to be honest, I mean, people are really missing not being able to come in, not being able to try, not have the experience. So I certainly have a lot of confidence in the one-to-one experience in a moment in time when everything seems so focused on online. That's certainly what I felt. In terms of the other technologies, I mean, I would say the one that I have focused in on has been Zoom or FaceTime with clients. And I mean, that's certainly something that could complement, but I just don't think it's a substitute for face-to-face. It's probably no big surprise that people, retailers and customers alike, are craving face-to-face connections at the moment. For many, the social interactions that we soak up as we go about our day-to-day are a key part of our mental and general health. One person who knows this intimately is Colin Harmon, founder of 3FE Coffee in Dublin, which began as a small coffee shop and a nightclub and now boasts a successful subscription model, training courses, multiple outlets and a roastery from which they supply over 50 businesses. 3FE also famously played a role in Intercom's early days, as it was in one of those coffee shops that our company founders would meet to plan and build. Collins is a phenomenal success story, but one which, much like Michelle's, is born out of that instinct for personal connection. Here's Colin. Like the social payback that you get from working in hospitality is something that you can't really put a price on. And it's like if, if, I'm in, if I was working in the shop... And, you know, I had a, a problem with my bike or my TV wasn't working or I was curious about honey. Like, I'm, I'm one customer away from solving all of those problems. Like, the variety of people that you get to meet and interact with on a daily basis is, is really amazing, you know? And, like, it's whenever I go to, or if a friend is going to a city on holidays, they always say, find the best coffee shop. Because once you find the best coffee shop, they'll tell you where the best restaurant is or the best bar or the best car garage or whatever it is it's just that's the hub for the city and that that was you know it, something that you just didn't get in you know a desk in in a <laughs> in an investment bank um there's that, that sense of interaction and and making and doing and, and having i suppose a sense of purpose you know so it sounds almost trite like but if you have a list of dockets in front of you to make you know 20 drinks and that that keeps getting replenished over and over again you do completely zone out and have this really weird kind of like state of flow I suppose what they call it where it's just the most incredibly intense but also relaxing experience you know and it's hard to find that in other other jobs Yeah you almost make it sound meditative there so to keep kind of on that sort of personalization side of things when you launched the subscription service that you offer and it was kind of one of the first you were one of the first coffee places in Ireland to do that was that kind of a way of making that personal service scalable for you 
Yeah, because I think it's about routine and what you see with people, I suppose, is that like we'd start selling retail bags of coffee in the shop and what you'd see is that that person would come and buy a bag of coffee, but they'd probably like be back on that same day the following week. And you'd have, you know, you catch up and say, oh, you know, how did your kids get on with their swimming lessons? Or, you know, did you get that job? Or, and that interaction would continue on like that day every week. And they'd come back and they'd buy a cup of coffee, a bag of beans and then off they go again. And trying to like, you become very much a part of people's lives, you know, and, and coffee is that, is that kind of catalyst for these social experiences. And that can be in coffee shops, but it's also an online experience now as well. And people look forward to getting that bag of coffee in the post. Like, I have a coffee subscription. I used to go home every Friday evening and, and my wife would say, did you bring back coffee? I'm like, oh, I forgot, you know. And it's like, how could <laughs> I of all people not have coffee? But So I put myself on a, on a coffee subscription. And even, like, people laugh when I say it, but even to this day, when it arrives on my house on a Thursday morning, and I, well, I'll get home in the evening and see it, and the package will be sitting there, I still get giddy. And it's like, oh, there's coffee. And you open it up and I know what's in the bag. And I open it up, it's coffee. And my wife is looking and going, yeah, it comes every week, Colin. <laughs> but it's just that, that sense of getting something in the post and it's, it's a ritual. Then you have a new bag and what's going to be this week. And it's a wonderful experience. And we have customers that have been subscribers for like six or seven years now. And, and they, they love that feeling every week when it comes. Even the postmen or the delivery drivers, they love the smell of the coffee when they're delivering it to people as well, you know, as it seeps out of the bags and everything. So it's quite a a personal experience despite I suppose how people would interpret uh, internet sales you know yeah no that's completely true I love that little anecdote about the postman as well because it makes sense you know if you're going to be carting stuff around and it smells nice it's going to make your life more pleasant but talk to me a little bit about what motivated you initially to, to start offering subscription services or where did you kind of get the idea that this might be actually a good catalyst for your business I could tell very early on that people were interested in what we were doing. But the problem was that I didn't have any money. And I, I was wary that somebody else would do all the things I wanted to do before uh, I could get the capital together. So at the time, um, my friend Steve Layton, who ran Has Been Coffee in the UK, was supplying us with coffee. And he'd be roasting coffee for competitions. So I rang him and I said, Steve, you let me distribute your coffee in Ireland and I'll give you half the business. And when we reach critical mass, we'll open a roastery in Ireland. And he was like, oh, what, what have we got to lose? We might as well. So we started supplying coffee shops in Ireland. And then we started doing the subscriptions around about the same time as we hit about the half ton mark. And the half ton mark is like, uh, it's very arbitrary, but it's also the point where it just gets easy to roast. So the first week we roasted coffee in Dublin, we could roast half a ton of coffee. But to get us just over that limit every week consistently, we needed to find new ways of selling more coffee. And after the subscription model came in. So at the time, Steve was roasting obviously in the UK. And this was about 2011. And mm -hmm. I think the mistake a lot of people in Ireland do is that they look at the UK market and say, well, the population of Ireland is one thirteenth uh, the size of the UK. So therefore, our online buying market is one thirteenth, And it really isn't. So at the time, I think it was probably one fiftieth the size. The UK market was so advanced compared to Ireland, but it's catching up now. But we, we knew that it was going to go that way because uh, like a lot of things in Ireland, you know, whatever happens in the UK or in the US, we, we kind of follow suit a year or two afterwards. So it's advanced quite quickly up to then. But that subscription model just gave us that extra bulk so if we needed this is a kind of a, a coffee roaster's perspective if you need to roast yeah. for 20 kilos at a time if you only have 10 kilos worth of orders coming from a shop you need to roast the full 20 and then find a home for the other 10 so it gave us an outlet for the coffees and I mean anyone that works in retail it's like if you're selling specials in, in a restaurant 
what you and the chefs and the accountants know is that you know you need to get rid of this product before it goes off but what you tell the customer when they come in is like oh i've got something you're gonna love <laughs> and it's that's that's part of hospitality you know it's just making you selling a story to people and and it's not you know tricking them they're there for their that's what they're there for too you know they want to know about stuff and, and see that you're passionate about stuff so it gave us an outlet to sell the coffee that we had extra uh, roasts of and got us up above that that size but the way it took off then was really something special and we have various dis- different subscriptions that you can use now and it just it, it was a very simple and easy solution for people that actually just couldn't get near the shop either as well because they just want that convenience in their life and it's it, how it's tied together and fitted into so many people's lives and their working lives it goes to offices as well as people's homes now it's be, really been something amazing that's so cool and do you do you see a change in or a difference in how you interact with say subscription customers versus people who might pop into the shop because it's their local haunt? Sometimes they're like, they're one and the same. Like people will come to the shop, maybe they, but they might only get to the shop, you know, once a month, especially at the moment. So the, the website kind of acts as uh, an access point for them. And then also there's those customers that like, we did a, a thing with our Instagram account where you put your you know, your username in and your, your password and it tells you where all of your uh, your followers are. And at the time, I think we had like 25,000 followers on Instagram and 15,000 of, of them weren't in Ireland. Wow. So it, it's quite unusual because in, in coffee terms, like there's a lot of like there's coffee geeks in Singapore and Sao Paulo and Alaska that would know everything about 3FE. But people that work one street over haven't got a clue who we are. So we kind of work in that kind of weird niche market sometimes. But the website and the subscription services gave us access to those people as well. So it was able enabled us to scale into those areas too. But it's multifaceted and you, you, you do have different relationships. We have customers online who are constantly talking to our staff and our staff know them intimately, but have never met them. And it's a really odd thing to see it happens. And certain staff would be like kind of almost notorious for uh, for making comments and saying different things about different things. But it, it, they become part of the fabric of the company. And it's like, oh, what did such and such say about that? Because everybody knows they'll say something. They always have something to say. And it's it, it's really interesting to see how that grows. But at, at the core of it, it it's the same. It just, yeah. it, it just, you know, mashed together slightly differently. Yeah, because it seems like you've managed to blend, and I know I'm using a coffee analogy there, like a a very traditional retail model with the subscription economy and e-commerce as well. And they obviously both add huge value to your brand. Do you think like your previous work experience outside of hospitality and the kind of clientele that you might have attracted when you were based down in Grand Canal Street as well would have played a role in your decision to embrace that opportunity? I remember the first time I went to visit a bank manager and, and he asked me like who my target market was. I just said, everybody. And he was like, well, you can't be every, you can't, that can't be your target market. Who's going to buy your product? I was like, everybody. And he laughed and told me I needed to do more research. But <laughs> coffee is literally for everybody. Like, I know we, we have a reputation as this hipster coffee shop, but if you come to 3FE, well, maybe not now, but normally if you come to 3FE and sit in there, you'll have, you know, OAPs from around the corner. You'll have, you know, young couples that are coming from the hospital, the maternity hospital up the road with their new babies. You'll have students from Trinity College. You'll have a couple of hipsters in. You'll have a very broad cross-section of society. And that is, I suppose, is the great thing about coffee because it's so wide and diverse and that it, it, everybody's into it, like rich people, poor people, everybody in between, you know. And it lends itself so well. That's part of the reason I think why we've been so successful is because we literally have to sell to everybody. And it is, to be fair, quite a habit-forming product, you know, and so it kind of, it lends itself really well to something like subscription. You know, you mentioned there your your Instagram followers. 
do you find that people have a tendency if they're signed up to a subscription and it's part of their routine as you say that they have a tendency to kind of evangelize for your brand Absolutely. Like Instagram is like, is a really great thing for us in that sense, because, you know, people will always take a picture of it when it lands and stick it up. And that's always the best way for us to, to sell the product on. And I think coffee is one of those things that it's, it is, I don't know, like we have, we have these kind of meetings sometimes where we just talk nonsense about stuff that probably isn't going to happen. But I was saying like, you know, what would we do if coffee became extinct? You know, if, if climate change got to the stage where like it just, coffee just couldn't be grown in the, in the way it is at the moment. And like, if you step back and think about it, it's like, well, in a way, what we don't we do is that we don't really sell coffee. We sell like social experiences, like that social interaction is what we do. So if we could sell, you know, chicories, what they drank during World War II and they couldn't get coffee into Europe. So if we just, you know, roasted chicory and sell that, would people still come to 3FE? Would we find different varieties of chicory grown by different farmers and, and roast that and have different flavor profiles and make different drinks and that? And then would we sell that to other businesses and would we sell it online? And could we do that? And in theory, we could. But at the core of everything, the thing that we can change is that coffee is what kind of brings people together. And even when people, like, they get coffee sent to their house, they're still sitting down in the morning and making coffee for, you know, their friends or their housemates or their husbands or wives or whatever. And they're still inviting or usually inviting their friends over for coffee. They're still, you know, maybe bringing it to the office and in the thermos and pouring some for the person that works in the in the office next to them. You know what I mean? So it's it's still people don't meet for bacon sandwiches they meet for coffee you know what I mean and it's uh, a <laughs> yeah. it, that, that social interaction is is really really important as we said you know you, you've managed to kind of straddle a very traditional business model with almost a tech model of you know embracing that subscription economy for companies like yours what do you think the future holds you know with everything that's happened in the last nine months and you know with changes that you'd seen coming down the line anyway like definitely we always saw that the online sales would grow but I think where we are with online sales at the moment is somewhere expected to be in about three years time now when everything goes back to normal I don't think that they'll stay where they are but they won't go back to the way that they were so we usually see this pattern happen from like you know January to December and things peak around December because people just start buying gifts and we sell a lot of coffee online around December and in January they settle back down, but they'd never settle as low as they were before. And then that starts over again. And that's happened year on year for the last seven or eight years. And at the moment, it's it's many multiples of what it usually is. And so it, well, hopefully as COVID-19 disappears, we would expect those numbers to drop down, but we, we do expect them to settle at a higher level. And because people just, they learn how to do it, basically. You know, you know, my dad is using Apple Pay, which is a crazy thing to think about. You know, it just wouldn't have happened before. But people are just, they know how to do things now and it just won't go away. So the focus for us with our shops, I suppose, and you can see this in the way that even the city of Dublin is changing at the moment, is that they're trying to make everywhere a bit more accessible for, you know, uh, for bikes and for pedestrians and families. And, and I think the city, I always thought this would happen, but it's been accelerated by recent events. But the city will become more of, I suppose, a hub for socialising and retail shops need to be experienced that. So at 3FE, our task now is, is to give people a coffee experience, you know, and, and that, that's to do with decor, it's to do with their interaction with customers, it's to do with the way we make drinks, but we need to give them an experience that they, they can't ordinarily get somewhere else. And I suppose with making coffee, it's facilitated as well because we, we have that aspect of people want to meet, you know, and we'll always be that, that crossover point. And then with the online sales, I think it's just going to become 
very, very normal for people to get a coffee subscription. If you were to design a product to, to sell in a coffee subscription, you would design coffee. It's that thing that needs to happen every day. You know, it needs to go to the same place in, at the same volume uh, on the same day every week, you know. And it really, it really fits that really well. So it'll become as normal, I think, as people getting bottles of milk from their milkman. Yeah, they get coffee in the post and it, I think it's a it's it's there to stay so we're, we're we feel like we've stumbled upon something that has a lot of longevity it gives a lot of security to the business and also the farmers that we're buying coffee from and to the staff that work with us Coffee as a habit forming purchase is perhaps no surprise but it does feel like what Colin is describing is part of a wider movement The way we are shopping in 2020 will have long-term implications for sure. From Colin's dad using Apple Pay for the first time to Michelle's customer trying their hand at FaceTime. As this moment in time lingers longer, we're all picking up habits that go far beyond caffeine. Here's Lauren. I think we have started to see the establishment of long-term habitual behavior. And I referenced this in my last answer. We're not going back to pre-COVID. This is not a thing that will exist. If the pandemic ended today, we would continue on with online shopping being a primary source, with buy online, pick up in store, with home delivery. You know, all these things would continue. You know, we we are not going to see it reverse backwards. You're still going to see retail shops redesigning themselves to be experience oriented and really focusing on both their online and offline capabilities. Black Friday, Cyber Monday will be proof of this. You will see for the first time, like vast numbers of people shopping online um, versus in store because we're not through this yet. And this is just behavior we're now much more comfortable with. And the other thing I think is you're seeing a a rise in consumers shopping from non-big box retail. Consumers are looking for those local options. They're looking for... Uh, the independent brands. They're looking for the SMBs because they know that every dollar they spend means something. And that, you know, sure, they could go spend it on a giant marketplace or a huge big box retailer. But if they wanted to help their friends and their family and their communities, they wanted to help their economies, you do that by supporting small business and you do that by supporting local. I don't think that's going to change either. I think you're seeing a resurgence of our desire to spend money close to home and our desire to spend money with local independent entrepreneurs because we know that's the human side of us and that's what creates better economies. And so I don't think, yeah, I think, I think these behaviors are here to stay. One surprising theme for me throughout all of the conversations today has been that these new habits that we're observing are perhaps not that new at all. What we're talking about is actually the technological facilitation of social behaviours that are older than we know. So friends and family make way for social media influencers and milk deliveries for hipster coffee subscriptions. Here's Colin again. You find this a lot is that like, you know, there's there's many wonderful things that happen with tech, but sometimes you, you scratch the surface and you realise that those things are already in place before, just in a different guise. So like subscription services have long been in place. Like milk is a really good example of that. My granddad, when he was younger, went to a shop in Arklo in Ireland and he went to a cobbler there and the cobbler measured his foot and then 
went to a friend of his who carved out an insert of a shoe basically the same size as my granddad's foot and my granddad has one and the guy kept one in the coffee shop and every year he'd write him a letter and the guy would take that foot off the wall and he would build a shoe around that foot and then he'd post them to my granddad and my granddad wasn't a wealthy man my granddad was a working class guy he worked down the, uh, down the docks in Dublin but he had a, a shoe subscription essentially and every yeah. year at the same time a new pair of shoes would arrive in the post and that was it so if somebody does that today with you know if you took a picture of your foot and your your iphone you scanned it and gave a 3d image and sent it off to a company in san francisco and they would then you know design the shoe around your foot and send it over to you it would be heralded as this new wonderful uh, you know personal subscription service but you know again there's been like things like this being around for years so it's just a new opportunity to reach wider audiences i suppose on a larger scale brilliant well i am off to google to see if there is currently a service offered that will make a shoe especially for my book <laughs> if there is a maybe we could do it together then okay one thing that's become clear to me today is that humans are indeed creatures of habit with all our technology and newfangled ways of trading core needs and wants remain much the same there's something reassuring about realizing that social commerce is merely an extension of how courtiers might have shopped in the 18th century or that a bespoke shoe subscription might be more in our sights than we previously imagined. At the end of the day, humans in 2020 crave the same things that we always have. Here's Lauren again. Humans love stories. They love options. They love personal. They love things that are made for them. They love to get to know other humans. This has been true since the beginning of time, and our shopping behavior over time has just mimicked that ebb and flow of our human desire. And so consumers today want the same things. They want their their brands to have a story. They want the people they shop from, they want to know them. They want to know where the products came from. They want to know that it was built for them. You know, these niche markets on a global scale are huge. And so as consumers continually look for things and stories and people to bond with, retailers have to be aware of that. And they have to adapt to that. They have to adapt their stories. They have to adapt their products. They have to adapt the way they interact with their consumers because that's that's the world we live in. So I think that HGWell's you know, storefront is a great example of, it's just adaptation. All retail adaptation is a function of consumer behavior. It's that simple. As the consumers change what they want and expect, Retailers have only two options, adapt or go out of business. No one could have predicted the last nine months. So what what I can say is what has kind of always been true about entrepreneurism is that innovation, experimentation, and adaptation is what wins. And so if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a retailer of any size, scale, scope, anywhere in the world, What you can be sure of is the next 10 years will be full of the need to innovate and the need to adapt and the need to not fall in love with the past, but embrace the change of the future. That is what kept retailers going for the last 100 years. That is what will keep the next generation of retailers going for the next 10 years, the next 100 years, is that willingness to be nimble, that willingness to experiment. We are in a huge fundamental shift in retail behavior and how retail is supposed to happen, period. And the winners will be those who are flexible. The winners will be those who adapt along with their consumers. 
And I think, you know, we're seeing amazing examples of that today with retailers all around the world just doing amazing things despite huge unknowns and un unforeseen shifts in, in um, their industries. And I think, you know, that's what we're going to need to see over the next 10 years is that same level of passion and innovation and um, creativity that has been the hallmark of entrepreneurs since the beginning of time. Thanks for joining us for episode two of Shop, our four-part series looking at the retail and e-commerce landscape. We'll be back next week with another episode for you, where we'll chat to just some of the companies who are supporting and influencing this new ecosystem for retail. We hope you'll join us.